You ready, Ma? I am. Are you ready, Erin? Let's do this. Let's do this. Welcome to another episode of Gone with the Bushes, where two generations of bushes recap classic movies, give trivia, add our perspectives, and hopefully entertain you. This week, we take you to a jury room in New York City. New York City? New York City. Guy, what do you say? I say, what is this movie? And let's do this. Let's do this. Uh, um, put your seatbelts on, people. It could be a bumpy ride. Well, you got to tell the people the name of the movie. Oh, well, <laughs> the true that, 12 Angry Men. 1957? Uh, TV play by Reginald Rose. And this might be a little difficult because none of the characters had names. But fear not, listeners. I came up with a cheat sheet, a scorecard. I got the nicknames. I have some nicknames, too. So we will, uh, we will. We will confuse you. (laughs) You will end up confused and you will just have to go see the movie. Which I got to say, though, before we get into this. If you haven't watched this movie, you might want to just watch it and then turn this on. Because this this has been my favorite movie that we've done so far. It's it's not it's not even two hours long. I but it's an extremely important movie. I was riveted. I didn't even this is gonna be a very ma heavy episode because I did not take very many notes because I was just just watching. And then I was like, "Oh, I'm gonna, I'm gonna forget what happened." I, on the other hand, had had a cramped hand. Had to put Ben Gay on my hand. <laughs> had to keep pausing it because I wanted to write down every bit of dialogue because every piece of dialogue was so important. So this Reginald Rose, he wrote the the play. It was a TV play, yeah. And then he also wrote the screenplay. And very, very. Very few differences between them. I, uh, yeah. And the great Sidney LeMay, the fantastic Sidney LeMay, he directed it. His first, his directorial debut, I believe. He went on to, to do other movies. Maybe you've heard of these. He did Dog Day Afternoon. He did Network. He did The Verdict. He did Serpico. And he eased on down the road and did The Wiz. I think we're going to have to do some more Sidney Lumet. I'm telling you, I read his book, Making Movies, and it was one of the most enjoyable books I've ever read. Dang. It is fantastic. It is easy. It is easy breezy. And the man just had a joy for making films. And obviously the technical know-how and just the end, but also a very a sense of humor about it as well. Did you leave that book here at home? You know, I think that that book might have been a friend's in college and might have borrowed it. So I don't think I actually have it. Okay. Well, at least I don't have to move Michael's to get to your books in your closet. (laughs) Okay. This was a black and white movie. Okay. Erin, tell us your, your character names. Ah, all right. My character name. So these, it's 12 angry men. These are the, these are the 12 angry men. You know, it's 1957, people, so it is all 12 angry white men. White men. No women. Only time you saw a woman was in the very beginning shot, the very end shot. 
because they were outside the courthouse and women were allowed to walk on the street. Th- those were the days, I guess. I guess these were the days when America was great. Well, if you want to make America great again, <laughs> go back to this. Uh, all white people. Okay. So the jurors are juror number one. He's the foreman. And you call him? The foreman. I call him the foreman as well. Yeah. His name in real life was um, Mar- somebody Marshall. Uh, no, 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 no. it wasn't. Because he him. was the dude that was in Psycho. He was the detective in Psycho. Yeah. Um, and when I when I come to that part of my notes, we will... I have 11 pages of notes, people. It <laughs> You're going to hear yeah, some okay. pages rustling. Um, but he's somebody who was in a lot of TV in the 50s and 60s as well. I believe his name was like Martin Bals- Balsam or something like Big-zackly. that. Exactly. Yeah. Big exactly. All right. So then we have so he so to paint the picture, he's he's a he's a uh, he's kind of um, he's a shorter man, but he's very, very stocky, um, kind of muscular build, dark hair. You know, he's it's just black a dude. and white. So he has a, a light gray shirt on, which could have been any color. Mm-hmm. It was like a polo shirt. Oh, he was the dude. Tie. Yes. He was wearing, this dude was rocking a polo shirt with a tie. I'd never seen it before. But I often, I often wondered, when I see polo shirts, I was like, could you wear it with a tie? Foreman could. Foreman could. So this, the foreman is the kind of guy who wears a polo shirt with a tie in 1957. And gets away with it. Yeah. Who gets made foreman of the jury. Exactly. The second okay, guy. Okay, so we got foreman. Oh, here it is. Martin Balsam. Mm-hmm. Juror number okay. two. This guy, he's going to be known as Nerd Alert. <gasps> I had Wilbur Milk Toes. <laughs> yeah. He, he, yes. He's short. He's balding. He wears glasses. He's the guy that you want to do your taxes. He has a very high-pitched voice, too. And in real life, he was the voice of Piglet. <gasps> oh. Mm-hmm. And he was on like that that show that was big in your time, uh, Bob Newhart. Yes, he was. Mm-hmm. He was on a lot of shows in the fifties and sixties as well. Mm-hmm. You, you see him, you're like, oh, this guy, he's slight. He's always been teased. He had his, he got wedgied. He's nerd alert. Juror number two. All right, juror number three. This guy, this guy's a real hothead. He's got a big head and a big face that looks like it's been punched. And his hands, his hands have done some talking themselves. Now, I I have a nickname that you're probably not going to remember. But I kept calling him this because I thought for the entire movie that this is who was playing him. And okay. and I was really wrong when it wasn't. But I was like, you know what? Forget it. I'm still going to call that guy, this guy's name. Juror number three is C. Scott. Because I thought George C. Scott was playing him. He played him in the in in something else, though. He played him before the movie. Because this guy looked like George C. Scott to me. His, the actor is uh, Lee J. Cobb. Lee J. Cobb, exactly. I called him Angry Father. <laughs> yes, this this guy's got anger issues, and just picture George C. Scott. Picture Pat. Exactly. So that's exactly. why I called him C. Scott. Yeah, that worked. Juror number three. All right, juror number four. This dude is stiff as a board. The dude doesn't smile. He's got no sense of humor. He's your worst nightmare of a dentist. Um, 
But rimless glasses. And hence, juror number four is glasses. And and in real life, he's um, E. G. Marshall. He's the oh. the father-in-law to uh, Chevy Chase's character in National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation. Ooh, somebody did some research. I just, I, a lot of these people looked really familiar to me, just a lot yeah. younger. Yeah, and he, um, through the whole thing, he never takes his jacket off. And we'll, we'll discuss why that's yeah. something later. I mean, this, I don't, I don't want to offend anybody, but honestly, just shooting from the hip, my reaction when I'm watching the film, I got kind of a, like a Nazi vibe from him. Yeah, he was very, well, he was cool as a cucumber, you know. Nazis didn't sweat. It didn't I don't know where sweat. Oh yeah, I do. Never mind. And this guy, he, I mean, stiff as a board. Like he, yeah. he had a broom stuck up his ass. This guy, mm-hmm. I never saw him bend. Exactly. All right. So juror number four is glasses. Glasses. Juror, okay. juror number five. He's an Orioles fan, hun. He's he's very nervous. Oh. He's a very nervous dude. He's very quiet. And so I refer to him as Baltimore. Me too. Great minds. And he was attractive and he was in advertising. So no, he was sort of He a, wasn't um, the advertiser. A, yeah, a draper guy. No. That's not juror number 5. You skipped ahead. Ad man is juror number 12. You're right on Oh, okay. I'm they wrong. they kind of Baltimore. look similar okay. in that, in that all white guys look alike. <laughs> kind of thing. <laughs> Told you to fasten your seatbelts, people. No, this is this is the like the older guy in real life went on to play. Um, what's his face in the Odd Couple? That's Jack Klugman. Oh, you're talking Jack Klugman right now. Yeah, he's Baltimore. Oh, he I, was really quiet, really nervous. Yeah. Yeah, that's Baltimore. Okay. He was a okay. Baltimore fan. Okay. Juror number six. This guy, he's just the regular guy. He works. He works and he's he wears his pants up high. Um, doesn't wear doesn't wear a suit and tie. He just wears the the high waisted pants and the button down shirt, short sleeves. Short sleeves. Um, I call him blue collar. Yeah, definitely blue collar. He's, dude. He's just, and he's not bitter about. He's worked every uh, every single day of his life. He this man has worked, and he's not even bitter about it. He is not. So he's blue. Jury number six, blue collar. And forgettable. Yeah, very forgettable. Yeah, I'm sorry. But, okay. Um. Juror number seven. This guy is a wise guy. And all he wants to do is go to the baseball game. Jack Warden. Yes. And he's dressed like Fozzie Bear, but minus the optimism. So I call him (laughs) I call him Dark Fozzie Bear. (laughs) He's got the Fozzie Bear hat. He looks just like Fozzie Bear to me. Oh. And he, he's so kind of hairy. Fozzie? I call him Dark Fozzie Bear because Fozzie Bear is very optimistic and really happy. And I didn't want yeah, people to think this like, guy wasn't. Like, I this, called him Yankees guy. Yeah, we're going with Dark Fozzie Bear. Okay. <laughs> he just, okay. It, I'm just like, wow, that guy's like Fozzie. He's like the opposite of Fozzie Bear in real life. I mean, not in real life. In real life, because 12 Angry Fozzie Men. Is life. Real. <laughs> yeah. 
Wait, he's okay. not? All right. Juror number eight. Well, this guy's just Fonda, a.k.a. The Fonda. The Fonda. He's the Fonda yeah. because juror number eight is played by Henry Fonda. Need I say more? So I just called him Henry Fonda. <laughs> yeah, I just call him Fonda. Okay. I, I like the Fonda, but yeah. <laughs> none of my notes have the Fonda. Only Fonda. Because I'm kind of Fonda of him. All right. Juror number nine. That's Grandpa. This is the oldest dude. His pants are up to his uh, armpits. Um, I don't think he probably called somebody a whippersnapper at some point. Yeah. But he's Grandpa. Yeah, we got some old people on this jury, but this is the oldest of the old. By far. Yeah. If you if you read the 500 Hats of Bartholomew Covens, this is the father of the father of the father of Nat. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he's old. Yeah, he's old. This guy was around. He was probably in when they signed the Declaration of Independence. I was there. <laughs> All right, juror number 10. This guy. This guy has a summer cold. But wait, does he suffer from a summer cold or does he suffer from another insidious sickness? This Probably, yeah, he suffers from all of the above. And has he got a schnoz on him? <laughs> he has a, that's not, that's not a banana. That's his nose. That's exactly. And in real life, that's Ed Begley. Okay, hold on. Number, okay, but I'm calling him old cold because he's oh, that's the sick nice. guy. I called him white supremacist. I know. I saw in your notes that you just went all out white supremacist. <laughs> um, there were a couple on this jury, so I kind of thought I was like, hmm. I just yeah, called him giving him numbers. Yeah. Honestly, the most offensive thing to me about him was that he was sick in the juror room with everybody. I was and like, nobody commented on that. Yeah, I'm like this mofo. Up in here, sneezing. It was before germaphobes, I guess, because everybody else would have been going, go wash your hands, yeah. dude. You need to be sitting elsewhere, which we'll get to later. Yeah, <laughs> so this is Ed Bagley, and this is going to be kind of a, well, you're an idiot, Aaron, but it never dawned on me that Ed Bagley Jr. was a junior. I just felt like that was his name, Ed Bagley uh -huh. Jr. Well, this is the first time I, uh, that I have, uh, consciously seen Ed Begley to know that he was the junior of Ed Begley. Yeah, and I, I have to say, Ed Begley Jr., when I think of him, I think of of of, of uh, charming, outgoing, uh, kind of like um, quirky. And he, he would tend to put like a bit of a smile on my face. And yeah, not this dude. Not father. Not papa. Not in this role. So that's juror number 10, old cold, a.k.a. white <laughs> supremacist. All right. That brings us to juror number 11. This guy is one of those there immigrants who comes over to this country to make a better life for himself. The audacity of this man. Yeah. He, he's, he's, a, he's from somewhere in Europe. I kind of thought he was German, but then when I looked at the, the cast and his name looked more like it could have been Polish, but you know, oh. it's all. But he's a watchmaker. So hence. That's why I went with German. I went with watchmaker. Okay. I kind of thought he was, I was like, oh, is he Italian? But again, 
I I have a very loose ear. I can't tell anything from anything. Uh, and that brings us to juror number 12. I was going to call this mofo Don Draper, oh. but uh, <laughs> this guy's a putz. And all yeah, he doesn't deserve the Don Draper. Yeah, all he does is put on his glasses and he takes off his glasses and he makes like stupid jokes and he just reminds everybody that he's in advertising. So he's ad man. Yeah, he's definitely ad man. All right, so those that's your cast of characters. Okay. So the movie starts out with um, no music. Did you notice that in the very beginning? They're showing the um, the courthouse. And the only reason we say New York City is because at one point they're looking out the window and somebody says, is that the Woolworth building? But the notes I read said it could have been any big city in the Northeast. Let's go with. Well, yeah, because this courthouse that they're in to establish where they are is beautiful. Had to, I'm thinking, oh, it was 57. Do you think this was part of the New Deal? And they had all those, like, what are they, Roman columns and whatnot, lots of marble. Yeah. I'm like, yeah. I'm like no, that's justice. <laughs> well, yeah. And so we start in the courtroom with the judge giving instructions to the jury. And you only see the back of the defendant's head. Um, and the judge could not be more bored. He's like, practically yawning and he's he's giving them their instructions you know if there's a reasonable doubt you can't find him guilty it has to be unanimous either way but if you decide that he's guilty it's a mandatory death sentence and all you see is the back of the kid's head and then it shows a close-up of him and he could be uh, many different ethnicities but he is not blonde and he is not blue-eyed Right. So he is obviously, um, I'm saying Hispanic, probably. I got the Hispanic vibe, too. Although, watching it from my 2017 eyes, I could say Muslim as well. Could have been. Now, what I read said he was Puerto Rican, but there was absolutely nothing to say that he was Uh. Puerto Rican. In fact... They made a they made a point of not saying what his ethnicity was. Well, based on the context clues of uh, how's the film unravels and what different people say, I was pretty sure that he was some sort of Hispanic. Yeah. Yes, um, because I don't feel like the anti-Muslim thing started until later. No, but I thought that that was sort of a, a genius of this film. That, it, that oh, yeah. I mean, this talk, people always are like, oh, how does it stand up? How does this stand up? You could strip off the 1957 and slap on a 2017 to this film. You sure could. My God. So they go in. So the jury goes in, all white men. Um, the youngest one of them would have been probably... Henry Fonda or um, Forgettable Dude. Ah, Blue Collar. Yeah, they're all in their 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, and old man, old, old man, 
probably 80s. It's a hot day and the fan in the jury room isn't working. And so they're trying to open the windows and the bailiff is going around checking their names and then they're all there. So he locks them in. And one guy goes, they actually locked the door. I didn't know they were going to lock us in. I think that was Baltimore. So um, one dude, they're just talking as they're milling around trying to open the windows and taking off their jackets. And there's actually uh, hangers where they can hang their jackets up. So, uh, but um, uh, who uh, glasses, you call him glasses, mm-hmm. doesn't take his jacket off, doesn't loosen his tie. He just sits there and he doesn't sweat either. So one guy is never going, I almost it. fell asleep. Never and, trust anyone who doesn't sweat. Oh, well, really? <laughs> and, um, and they're going, the lawyers, they just talk and talk and talk about nothing. This is an open and shut case. And somebody else says, slap those tough kids down before they get started. And, oh, that's C. Scott. C. Scott's yeah. all about talking with the hands. Yeah. We were lucky we got a murder case. And you know what we're dealing with here. And so the dude has hot weather cold. One guy is still in the bathroom. And that was? That was old man. Grandpa. Old man. Yeah. Takes him a while to relieve himself. He's got prostate issues. Uh, Probably. Uh, We found out that one guy was a broker and one guy owned a messenger service. Oh, yeah. And so somebody else goes, oh, this was... um, this was Yankees, dude. Ah, Dark Fozzy Bear. Dark Fozzy Bear. We can get out of here pretty quick. I got ball tickets tonight. Going to go see the Yankees tonight. And so, so um, the foreman goes, I think we should sit in order of our jury numbers. And they're going, what, what, what? There's a whole lot of extra um, sidebar talking. It's, a, it's 12 men. Yeah. So they sit in order, and the the reason that that's important is the only way we can keep track of them because none of them have a name. Oh, haha! No, I could keep track of them because I had names. So somebody goes, the kid kills his father. Let's those uh, that just happens. They let those kids run wild up there. Serves them right. And the foreman starts with, let's take a preliminary vote. So. Um, and one guy goes, it's going to be 12 to nothing either way. So they raise their hands, which is, you know, really good. <laughs> raise your hands if you think he's guilty. So some hands went up right away. And then some hesitated and went up. And it was 11 to 1. The one being? Fonda. Oh, but There's on always one. Oh, boy. Oh, boy. Well, what do we do now? Well, all of the, the preliminary chit-chats going on, the people and the talking all them doing their thing before they get organized. The Fonda is just staring out the window, pulling the Fonda move. That's this is what he does. Henry Fonda is fantastic at just staring off into the distance. He was a producer on this film. Yes. Um, and so, um, so, so everybody goes, what you, you think he's guilty, don't you? And Fonda goes, I don't know. I, I just want to talk about it. And not easy to raise my... It, um, it's just not easy to raise my hand and send a guy off to die. Well, he's a kid. He's 18 years old. Yeah, he's just a kid. 
accused of stabbing his father to death. But we can't decide a boy's life in five minutes. Right. And so he goes, I just want to talk about it. So he, he goes, let's, okay, let's do this. Let's talk for an hour. The ball game doesn't start until eight. So we've got plenty of time. So Fonda goes, this kid's been kicked around all his life. He's lived in a slum. His mother died. He was in an orphanage while his dad was in jail for forgery. He's a wild, angry kid. I think we owe him a few words. And somebody else goes, he's lucky he got a fair trial. I've lived among them. They're all liars. And then, and then advertising dude, not worthy of Draper, is drawing pictures of rice pops on paper and talking about his work to, to somebody else. And inappropriate um, bra. Yeah. I mean, they're, they're not taking this seriously at all. Um, why do you disagree? We can tell you where you're wrong. So they decide to go once around the table and everybody would just share why they thought Fonda was wrong. So I guess here we should kind of say that the whole thing about the jury is that it's beyond a reasonable doubt. And it's the burden of the prosecution to, to prove beyond a reasonable doubt that the defendant is guilty. Right. And the doubt, I mean, there's allowed to be doubt, but it must only be to the extent that it would not affect a reasonable person's belief regarding whether or not the defendant is guilty. So you're allowed to have some doubt, but you're not allowed to have reasonable doubt. And there's this Blackstone's formulation, which states, quote, it is better that 10 guilty persons escape than that one innocent suffer. Especially when you're talking the death penalty. Yeah, because it has to be unanimous. And if they vote that he's guilty, this kid, he's dying. In the electric chair, I heard. Oh, yes. In the chair. So they start with, uh, I call him Wilbur Milktoast. You called him? Nerd alert. Nerd alert. I just think he's guilty. They didn't prove otherwise. Someone saw him do it. And number three, oh, and somebody says, well, it's the burden of the prosecution to prove that he's guilty, not the defense's job to prove that he's not guilty. Yeah, the defense isn't, doesn't have to prove in the United States judicial system, at least as it is written, doesn't have to prove that his, their client is innocent. The prosecution must prove that the defendant is guilty. So number three goes, uh, I'm, I just care about the facts. So who was number three, Aaron? Number three was C. Scott. Oh, okay. I just care about the facts. The facts were that at uh, 10 minutes after 12, the guy down upstairs heard loud noises. They heard somebody screaming, I'm going to kill you. They heard a body hit the floor, went to their doorway, saw a kid, that kid, the defendant, running down the steps and then he went to call the police. And the coroner came and said that the dad was dead about midnight. So um, Edward G. Marshall, glasses. Oh, glasses, goes, 
the kid, the kid's alibi, he said he was at the movie, but he doesn't even know the name of the movie or who was in the movie. No one saw him in or around the theater. And um, then number five says... Baltimore. Woman, huh? Baltimore. Okay, Baltimore said, the woman across the street saw the kid going in and out. She saw the kid stick the knife in the father. Now, in between the two apartment buildings, there was the L train. So she saw the kid stab the nose of an empty L train. She saw the kid stab the father through the empty L train. Through the empty L train. That was her, that was what she said. So Fonda goes, you don't believe uh, the boy's story, so why do you believe the woman's story? She's one of them, too, because there had been talk about them and how you, you can't do, do any better because all of them are alike. And so he had said that to C. Scott, and C. Scott comes back with, you're a pretty smart fella. So then Jack Klugman goes, I don't, well, I don't want to comment, I want to pass. Mm-hmm. And then the next person goes, um, I don't know, I, I, I was convinced early. Is this forgettable? Oh, yeah, that's blue collar. Okay. I, I was convinced early. I was looking for a motive, and there was a motive. The kid and the father had a fight. They had an argument about seven. It was eight, and when they heard the father hit the boy two times... And Henry Fonda goes, motive? Boy's been hit his whole life. Don't see two slaps provoking a murder. And Yankees, Fozzie, Dark Fozzie, yeah. said, um, all it said that this kid it, it was five and zero. He threw a rock at a teacher. He stole, a, at 15, he stole a car. He's been arrested for mugging and knife fighting. He's handy with a knife. Then we go back to um, juror number four, who goes, the way kids are these days. I got I got one kid. He's twin. Oh, no, this is, no, this uh, is angry C. Scott. father. Yeah. C. Scott goes, I got one kid. He's 22 years old. At nine, he ran away from a fight. Oh, it, it just made me sick. I had to make a man out of him. It, and I told him, I'm going to make a man out of you if I have to break you in two trying. And I made a man out of him. At 16, he hit me in the jaw, and I haven't seen him for two years. Kids, work your heart out. And he kept looking at this picture of his kid. So, obviously, he's got some baggage. Then we go back to another jury. He's from a broken home. He's got a bad neighborhood. Children from the slums have no potential. They're a menace to society. And then Jack Klugman goes, Baltimore. Hey, I, I lived in the slums all my life. You can probably smell it on me now. Uh, and go, somebody goes, no, so, no, no, don't be so sensitive. We weren't talking about you. But everybody is obviously bringing their, their life and what they've been through in their perspective of this case. Mm-hmm. So that's this whole dialogue going on. Then another juror says, this sensitivity, I can understand and he gets, oh, that, I think, was that um, German dude? This sensitivity, I can understand. He gets up and walks uh, walks away. The, and the then, watchmaker? And, uh, see Scott's still looking at that picture of his son. 
And Fonda goes, what he's got, what he's got, say, stop being a kid. What do you mean? You take the chair, stay in there. And I don't know what any of that means. <laughs> that was a note. Notes what from Ma. he's got, what he's got to say, stop being a kid. What do you mean? I don't know what that was. And um, the, I have foreman out. Well, maybe it's the, it's because the, the, I this is when I noticed that the foreman was wearing a polo shirt with a tie. And then I have Fonda's turn. Nothing is that positive. Thinks the defense didn't ask the right questions. He would have asked for another lawyer. Yeah. And like a, one alleged eyewitness, they could be wrong. People make mistakes all the time. But uh, yeah, again, I don't know where this fits in. It, right here. It fits in right okay. here. Because Fonda goes, I know he looks guilty. I know that. And it, but nothing is that positive. Yeah. The defense took too many things, let too many things go by. Um, and the law could just be plain stupid. Uh, you need to put yourself in the kid's place. Two witnesses for the entire case, could they be wrong? It's not, and somebody goes, well, it's not an exact science. And then, um, the switchblade comes up because it was a switchblade that was stuck in the father. Right. The boy bought it the night of the killing. And Henry Fonda goes, well, let's look at it. And so uh, Glasses guy goes, I just know the facts. I just want the facts. At this point, the foreman goes to the bailiff, I think, and gets the knife. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Glasses goes, first fact, boy left the house after being slapped several times. Somebody else goes, not slapped. He was punched. It's not the same thing. Fact number two, he went directly to the junk shop. He bought that knife. It's one of a kind. The only knife of that kind. Number three, he meets his kids, his friends, 845 and 945. He left his friends. They saw the knife with him. Number four, um, the knife was identified as the death weapon in the dad's back. No, it was Number the chest. Five. He got stabbed in the chest. Chest, you're right, exactly. Number five, he was home at 10 o'clock. So this is where the stories diverge. The state and the boy had the same story until then. But then the boy says he went to an 11.30 movie. He arrived home at 3. He lost his knife on the way to the movies because his pocket had a hole in it, and it <sighs> fell out. Like the Polar Express. It, and he never saw it again. And, but the knife was clean of fingerprints, and that's important. So, um, and somebody goes, well, it's possible it fell. Oh, of course, Fonda said that. It's possible it fell out and somebody else stabbed the father with a similar knife. Coincidence is possible. Now they're starting to sweat because it's really getting hot in this jury room. And, and they're going, there's, there's only one kind of knife. Oh, snap. This is when Henry Fonda does what, Aaron? Well, the guy, he's holding the knife. He's like, look at this knife. It's, it's the only one. And like to make his point, I forget who it was, but somebody stabs the knife into the table. And Henry Fonda, again, he was looking out that window as all this is going on. And he turns around, puts his hand in his pocket, takes out his switchblade and puts it right down on the table next to the murder weapon. And the two knives are very, very similar. 
I say, gosh darn identical. He bought it for $6 in the boy's neighborhood. So he this went out is, walking. This isn't a sequestered jury. <laughs> I find well, out right We're going to talk about that later. But everybody's ganging up on Henry Fonda. Uh, and they go, you can make a hang jury and he'll be tried again and he'll just be found guilty. It's only one night, um, Henry Fonda goes, a boy could die. Uh, somebody's worried about his business while he's in deliberations. So Henry Fonda has, says a proposition. First, we'll call for another vote. This time, let's have a secret ballot. So they, they all agree to a secret ballot. This time they go through and 10 guilty. Wait, wait, wait. wait. They call, Henry Fonda makes this proposition. He says, we're going to do another ballot. It's going to be a secret one, and I'm going to abstain from it. So it's just right. going to be between you 11 people. And if everybody votes, if all of you still vote guilty, then I'll go with you and say that it's guilty. But if and, one and person so, says that it's not guilty, then we're going to discuss it a little more. Exactly. So he's, he's going, look, you know, if, if you all still think he's guilty, we'll end this right now. But as they're going through guilty, 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 guilty. The last one he pulls up is not, not guilty. guilty. So somebody else. And you can see the relief on Fonda's face. Oh, because he was bluffing. <sighs> that could have gone so poorly, Fonda. I, w- I couldn't believe it. I was like, Fonda, what are you doing? They're all going to be guilty. Yeah. So then the old men start going, all right, who was it? Who was it? And they're going, it was a secret ballot. We don't have to tell you. Oh, and C. So- Scott. So they go after Jack Kludman. They say, we know you changed your vote. And Jack Kludman goes, who do you think you are? And then somebody goes, he didn't change his vote. I did. And it was. Uh, Grandpa? Grandpa. Grandpa changed his vote. Old, 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 old man changed his vote father time we should have called him father time oh father time yeah father time changed his vote he gambled for support i want to do more yankees dude walks out. oh i'm sorry fozzy bad fozzy walks out the old man says i'm talking here fonda goes he can't hear you he never will oh fonda and that's when i was going you know i i have political beliefs and I, I have some very dear people to me who have very different political beliefs and it's just so hard for me to understand that but that that spoke to me you know it's once not, somebody's mind's yeah. made up you're not gonna they're change not gonna it. hear you the only way they're gonna hear you is when something happened like they have an epiphany they have that moment where they yeah. see it Right. It's, it's no, nobody's well, going to tell them anything. And it's going to have to be personal. Yeah. It's going to have to be something that touches their heart. My, my granddaughter is black. <laughs> Bingo. <laughs> um, okay. So they, they're taking a break now. And um, there's the there's the ad guys being the ad guy. Oh, he was total so obnoxious. Yeah, yeah, he yeah he's obnoxious. Uh, C. Scott apologizes to Baltimore. Right. 
Um, they go in the bathroom, find out that the Fonda is an architect. Um, Dark Fozzie Bear tries to convince Fonda the kid is guilty. Uh, Blue, Blue, uh, Fonda's kind of like, he's, he, you know, he's, he's open. See, Fonda never thinks that the kid's innocent. No, Fonda, he never says he's innocent. Yeah, Fonda's always like, look, I'm not saying that he, that he didn't do it. I'm just saying that let's make sure that he didn't do it. That's right. all, that's all Fonda is saying. Let's let's make sure we don't have a reasonable doubt. Yeah, let's make sure that we walk through all of this and take into account everything because this is a person's life. And so Fozzie Bear, Dark Fozzie Bear, he just, oh, he's sweating. He's got a ball game. He needs to get to that game because he's, he's, I'm, Fozzie Bear is into gambling. He's got money on it. He might have books himself that he's got to run. He might. Fozzie Bear's a gambler. Kiss cam. Yeah, he's. Yeah, and he goes do-gooders. Well, you're wasting our time. It's plain as the nose on your face. Mm. And at this point, um, Henry found it. It's those the, the towels that they're using are old oh, cloth towels disgusting. that used to go through the, the the machine. It was like a rotating towel, and he's cleaning his fingernails he, in that towel. And then he moves to the other one and puts his face in it. He, like, puts the water on his face, and then he, like, goes over and, like, pulls it down and puts his face in it. I was just like, the 50s were disgusting. Yeah. Again, before germaphobes. Oh. Um, the well, work blue collar. Yeah. He, he comes, comes in. in. And, and Fonda's like, hey, you know, suppose you were on trial. Wouldn't you want us 12 men to really think about this? Um, and and then that dude, uh, Blue Collar, says back to, to Fonda, suppose you talk us all out of this and the kid really did knife his father. Mm-hmm. But that goes back to that, that, uh, that, what is it called? Blackstone's formulation. It is better than 10 guilty persons exactly. escape than one innocent suffer. I mean, but yeah. there are people who they don't believe that. The one, it, it, it's better. They believe oh, yeah. the opposite, the inverse of it. Yeah, I'd rather have 10 innocent people in jail than one guilty person go free. Yeah. Yeah. That was not my personal statement. That was what some people think. The, yeah. Not mine either, because I I think that that, I think your outlook on, on that is if you are one where you believe that, you're just go- like everything that comes out of your mouth, people are going to believe. But if you are of a group of people who it has been demonstrated that probably people aren't going to believe what you have to say, then you will find with Blackstone's formulation. Mm-hmm. Okay. So then they come back into the, into the jury room. Uh, Father Dude redoes. I wonder what Father Dude redid at that point. I don't know. <laughs> uh, okay, so there. Oh, he re, he recaps again. They were there was an argument. There, the kid ran, and um, somebody identified the kid's voice. That was definitely the kid who screamed at the father, "I'm going to kill you." Henry Fonda goes, "How well could he hear through the ceiling?" And uh, okay, so there were six cars on the L train. 
the last two cars were what the lady saw through. But some people are playing tic-tac-toe. Yes, this was C. Scott and Adman. Oh, did that's like a kid in my class who is sending notes when I am telling them direction. Oh, the Fonda walked over there and snatched that paper up. Did indeed, and crumpled it up. Crumpled it. Exactly. You mofos. We have a kid's life in our hands right here. Pay attention. So now they're talking about the, the trains on the L track. They said, did you ever live close to that? Because I did once. Man, those things are noisy. So how could, if the, if the train is on the L, and how could the, how could the dude hear anything? How could he hear a voice? That said, and, and identify it as this young kid that screamed out, I'm going to kill you. And then they figured out that probably it took 10 seconds per car to go past the window. I don't know how they arrived at that. Well, they, they, um, that's their like 1950s knowing things. Yeah. They keep, back in the uh, day, people used to just know things. And so somebody's going, well, how do you know it's 10 seconds? We can't be exactly accurate. And um, Fonda goes, that testimony could put a boy in the electric chair. I think we should be that accurate. And that's when Klugman says he couldn't have heard it. And then um, somebody's yelling at, oh. Well, C. Scott starts yelling at Father Time. Yeah. And then Blue Collar threatens to lay out C. Scott for yelling at the old man at Father Time. Like one of those, how dare you talk to an elder like that? Exactly. You talk to him that way again, I'm going to lay you out. And while this is going on, Foreman uh, puts the knife back together, knocks on the door, gives it back to the the bailiff. Mm -hmm. Um, And... Oh, and be- then they're going, why might, why might the old man lie about that? Why would he lie that he heard the kid, the thump, that he saw the kid? And so Father Time goes, did you notice that his jacket had a split in it? And, um, you know, he came, to, he came to court with a jacket with a split in it. And, and he walked really slowly. He was dragging his left leg. And he was just a quiet, insignificant man. Maybe he did it to get some attention. At this point, um, Wilbur Milktoast offers people a cough drop. Nerd alert and, offers yeah. people a cough drop. Henry Fonda, even if he did say it, uh, that doesn't mean it happened. Um, wait, even if he did say it doesn't mean it. And Wilbur Milktoast said, I remember thinking that. And that at this point, Henry Fonda goes, the boy was too bright to yell, I'm going to kill you, if he was really going to kill him. And um, C. Scott goes, bright? No, it wasn't C. Scott. It was a uh, white supremacist. Says, bright? He don't even speak good English. And our watchmaker. Um, watchmaker goes, doesn't. Oh, throwing that shade. Oh, snap. All over old cold man. He had had to take it it back to that. 
Uh, and then there's a close-up of George Klugman, and he goes, I'm, I'm changing my vote. Guilty. So now it is 9 to 3. 9 to 3 is the score, folks. And we're back with Yankee Dude. And, and he goes, uh, the lawyer, oh, I'm sorry, Fonzie. And the lawyer didn't even believe him. And, but, but he was a court appointed lawyer, you know, that he, he probably didn't have time for him. And, and that doesn't mean that he's guilty just because his own lawyer didn't believe him. There's such clock, a thing as bad lawyers. Oh yeah. Clockmaker says, you know, Fonda has some good points here. The boy looks guilty on the surface. Well, let's see. The murder was a 1210. He came back at three. If he really did it, why would he come back home? Yeah. Glasses dude goes to get the knife. Mm-hmm. And somebody goes, why leave it in the first place? Glasses dude said he panicked. Well, where did the panic start? Did it start when he was sure to not leave any fingerprints on it? Oh, so then advertising dude goes, I'd go back to get the knife, but maybe, maybe there's enough doubt. Oh, is this ad, is this where ad dude is actually like participating and he's like, well, wait a second. Hmm. He's the one in your, in your, um, meetings that actually at this point closes his computer or shuts off his phone and starts paying attention. Yeah. They're like, oh, welcome to the party. Glad you could join us. And so somebody said, did the old man see the kid running? Talking about little details. So they do another vote where they raise their hands, which is stupid. (laughs) But anyway, so it's nine to three. But then Watchmaker goes, wait a minute. Change mine to not not guilty. So now it's eight, eight to four. Eight to four. And then so, C. Scott's like, what is this? Underprivileged brother week. I like, I wrote that one down. <laughs> I had to pause it to write that one down. What is this? Under, underprivileged brother week. And uh, Watchmaker goes, there's a reasonable doubt. The father picks up the Fonda knife and, oh, um, I'm sorry, C. Scott picks up the Fonda knife and he says, kid was ramming this knife into his father. Where's the doubt? And the old man goes, that's not the knife. (laughs) Which I said was brilliant. (laughs) Because the knife that that was the murder weapon has been given back to the bailiff. Yeah, the unique one-of-a-kind knife. Exactly. And so then um, the uh, Fonzie Bear says, the old man ran to the door to see the kid from his bedroom. And Jack Klugman goes, uh, he couldn't run. Yeah, remember and, when we established that his leg, he dragged his leg. So Fonda at this point wants to see a blueprint, you know, he's an architect, of the, of the witnesses' apartments. So... Then he's going, uh, could he get to that door in 15 seconds? Uh, everybody's arguing, arguing, arguing. So C. Scott said he was an old man. He was confused. How could he be positive about anything? How could he be positive about anything? And it's like, dun, dun, dun. A pause. And Henry Fonda almost smiles. Mm, just, uh, just ever so slightly, the corner of his mouth just moves a millimeter. So 
they uh, now these guys are sweating through their clothes. They have back sweat going on. They have armpit sweat going on. It looks like Erin uh, one third of the way through her workout. Oh, and <laughs> I would say a quarter, but <laughs> so um, Henry Fonda is pacing out how long that uh, his hallway was to get from his bedroom where he heard everything to get to his front door where he could see the kid running down the steps. And um, and again, see Scott's going, heart's bleeding all over the floor. Y'all know he's guilty. I want to pull the switch. Ooh, Henry Fonda didn't like that. Um, he goes, well, actually, they, he timed out how long it would take dude dragging his leg to get to the door and it was 41 seconds now in theater time it was actually 31 seconds but they said it was 41 seconds all right well because they because fonda was doing it and then c scott was like you're going too slow on purpose and then scott fonda's the fonda's like all right fine i'm gonna like speed it up a little bit so Fonda was probably faster than the old man because they said that he was going too slow. But he was like, I'll even speed it up. Exactly. So C. Scott, man, he's just had it. So he goes, I want to pull the switch myself. And Fonda goes, you're a sadist. And C. Scott goes, I'll kill you. Oh, yeah. C. Scott gets angry. The, the people have to, like, hold him back. And he's like, I'm going to kill you. And Fonda goes... You didn't really mean you were going to kill me. Did you? Oh, Fonda. Um, Be- so at because this point. Remember, like, that had been a big contention is that the old man heard the son say the father, I'm going to kill you. And the Fonda's like, how many times have we said that? Like exactly. we say it all the time in 1957. I'm going to kill you. Yeah. We never mean it. And so then when C. Scott lets out the I'm going to kill you, he's like, do you really mean that? And C. Scott just, oh, he's so angry. Oh, he's so, so angry. angry. And at this point, almost all the jurors on, are on one side of the jury room and C. Scott is pretty much by himself on the other side. So everybody sits back down again. Now, this is and- when then somebody says to Glasses, Cause they're talking about how oh it's so hot it's so hot and they sit down next to somebody I don't I forget who sits down next to glasses somebody does and looks at him and is and this glass is still buttoned up tight and he's like don't you ever sweat and glasses is like no no I don't was his answer no I don't so at this point watchmaker says I beg pardon what are you uh, and um. Uh, white supremacist guy says, what are you so polite about? And Glasses goes, well, for the same reason you're not. Oh. It was the way I was brought up. Oh. Bam! Shots Let's do fired. that again. Let's do that one more time. Rewind. I beg pardon. Why are you so polite? For the same reason you're not. It was the way I was brought up. Awesome. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so then somebody goes, we aren't here to fight. This is a big responsibility. That's what's great about democracy. We have nothing to gain or lose with this verdict. Well, so it was this is, this like, is the watchmaker saying this. This and, man and was, who came yeah, to this and, country for these virtues and is now a part of this system. 
And it was like like how I am with politics, where it's not your team, you know, like it's not a Democrat team, a Republican team. It's it's what's best for the country. You know, just because you're a Democrat doesn't mean that you can't vote for a, a Republican person who you think is going to do a great job in some aspect of something. Yeah. So, yeah, it's not it, this isn't a guilty team not guilty team this is what's best for this kid what's this best for yeah. society this isn't the washington football team versus the dallas cowboys Ugh. versus america's team so it's not america's team i'm sorry uh, time for another vote i apologize donis and pat that's right you are outnumbered this is a washington football team podcast outnumbered oh man okay because i do get to see hamilton next year they're gonna do another vote it's gonna be an okay (laughs) ballot and they're gonna call out so this time it is six to six six to six dang and somebody goes a kid like that i don't think that kind of kid I don't think. Well, this is the white supremacist, uh, a.k.a. cold guy. Yeah. A kid like that. And and then uh, it could have been watchmaker said, I don't think the kind of kid has anything to do with it. The facts determine it. Uh, And and white supremacist goes, I'm sick and tired of facts. (laughs) Oh, if only fake news had been around then. And it is hot, hot, hot in that room. Oh, Father, time is getting woozy because you know that it's the elderly and the youngest among us who fall victims to the heat. Exactly. And dehydration. There has, uh, uh, Henry Fonda did say, do you want some water? No, I'm okay. Because if he has water, what's going to happen? He's going to have to go make water. So, um then it's getting dark outside. They go, wow, it's going to rain. You hear a clap of thunder and you hear some rain, which means I grew up in a house with no air conditioning. You have to close the windows. Oh. Dang. So Henry Fonda gets up and helps others close the window. At this point, the foreman turns on the lights. Now, if you've lived in a house with no air conditioning, lights create a lot of heat. So when it's and humid, you don't turn on the lights. But because it was so dark outside, they had to turn on the lights. And they had to close the windows. At this point, Fozzie Bear goes, oh, man, let me try that fan one more time. And it turns on. Oh, what do you know? Because it was attached to the lights. Mm. So he's going, whoa, this is better. This is better. Uh, he's talking about the game. and Oh, the, the foreman, foreman is talking um, about a, he's an assistant head coach at a high school. Um, Yankee turns on the fan, same switch. Things are looking up, says Fozzie Bear, Yankee. Then C. Scott says to Glasses, Tall, that tall dude was just trying to bait me. Tall dude in Henry Fonda. <laughs> Glasses goes, he did a good job. Yeah. 
he's like, he was just trying to bait me. And he's like, well, he did a fantastic job. Still no sweat. Not None. one bead of sweat. None. Not one button unbuttoned. Not the, sitting with perfect posture. <sighs> this guy. This, Watchmaker says. He's, he's seen I, some stuff. I'm sorry. I I'm convinced. I, the, this uh, glasses has. He's seen some dark things. I'm convinced. Yeah. He could have been Gestapo. I'm just, I'm just he saying. He looks very Gestapo. He, he really does. You know what it is? It's the, it's, he, he has no lips. It's a, it's, it's a thing with the German people. <laughs> I, I have no lips either. It's well, not we don't nice know if he's German. I'm just saying that the guy had, like, his mouth is a straight line. Yeah. Yeah, we do. We are a harsh looking people. <laughs> we don't even know if E.G. Marshall is German. He just ha- he just very he just gave off the German vibe. <laughs> he, he's definitely given up. He's scary. Uh, so Watchmaker goes to um, Fozzie Bear, Yankee Fozzie Bear. I don't think you understand reasonable doubt. Mm. Oh, well, Fozzie Bear, the arrogance of this guy. They all, they're all alike. All of them running over here. So, again, his kind are not, you know, well, the whole immigration thing, I guess. Mm, Fuzzy Bear, where'd your grandpa come from? (laughs) Unless he's Native American, he too is an immigrant. Oh, and and Henry Fonda goes, there is an important part. This important part of the testimony is that the kid couldn't remember the name of the movie or the actors. Ah, yes. Let's remember, he was questioned in the kitchen with the knife still sticking out of his father. Because when he came to court, he remembered the name of the movie and the actors. But he was under a great deal of stress, emotional stress. And Glasses goes... Yes, under a great deal of emotional stress. Um, so Fonda goes to Glasses, what, what did you do last night? And, and Glasses can tell him. What about the night before? Glasses I, I, can tell him. I dismembered a body. What about the night before that? Oh, Glasses can tell him. What about Monday night? Oh, I went to the movies. Well, what was the name of the first movie? Oh, Glasses has it cool as a cucumber. Then they go, well, what about the second feature? Yeah, people, back in those days, you could go to the movies and see two movies. What? Get out of here. Yeah, you could. Uh, You'd have an intermission and go back. It was sort of a gone with the wind, only it was two separate movies. Uh, So he goes, what about the second feature? What was the name of the second feature? And he, he misnames it. He says... Uh, something nerd alerts right there to call him out and nerd alert goes i saw that movie it was called instead of let's say the white enchantress it was called the blanco enchantress and uh who was in it oh there was there was that actress you know barbara long barbara lovey barbara lewinsky barbara uh i can't remember and Fonda goes, and you're not even under emotional stress. Ooh, and what happens then at the next cut of glasses, dude? A bead of sweat. Some sweat appears upon his forehead. And he says, the boy's guilty. 
Wilbur Milktoast wants to look at the knife. And he says, you know, I'm thinking about this downward angle of the stab wound. See, <sighs> Scott goes, the boy was shorter. Uh, wait, uh, uh, the boy was shorter, so it's hard to stab down when you're stabbing someone who's taller than you. And C. Scott wants to demonstrate it on Henry Fonda because he was shorter than Henry Fonda. Yeah, so Nerd it Alert. A little, Nerd. a little heated and a little too close. Nerd Alert <laughs> asks for the weapon. The bailiff gives him the weapon again. He gives them, He gives it to C. Scott. C. Scott's like, all right, I'll make myself shorter, but I want to I wanna test out this theory on uh, old Fonda. And he gets in his hand. He puts his hand up in the air and... He's like, see, I would, if I was going to, I would, yeah, it gets kind of like weirdly tense. Yeah. They kind of have to pull C. Scott back. Yeah, like, C. Scott, you know that's a real knife. Like, you're not actually going to kill him. And then Jack Klugman goes, has anybody in here ever seen a real knife fight? Uh, let me show you how they use this is called a switchblade and let me show you how they use the switchblade because Baltimore aka Jack Klugman he was the one that he grew up he grew up in the slums you could smell it on him if you take a deep whip yeah then Yankee Fozzie Bear uh, goes okay uh, uh, and he's showing how you don't use a switchblade the same way we would a knife where you stab you're gonna uh, um well, when you, you open the switchblade, yeah, you yeah. do it underhand. Like you don't, you don't put it. Like think of Psycho, the murder scene in Psycho with right. the knife, the handle is pointing. Yeah, it's overhand, so you stab downward. A switchblade, you take it out, you hold it in your hand. The blade comes up in the upward. So when you're using a switchblade, you go up because it, you exactly. don't have time to. Oh, I did the switchblade. Now let me change my hand position. At which point. Fozzie Bear changes his vote to not guilty. He goes, I've had enough. I'm just done with this. I'll say not guilty. Well, Watchmaker goes, wait a minute. Just because you have baseball tickets doesn't mean you just change your vote. You have to have a reason to change your vote. And, and Fozzie Bear goes, I don't have to do anything. I can do whatever I want. I'm an American. Uh, 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 uh. I'm saying not guilty. So now... It is. Well, then. Uh, then then um, um, yeah. advertising dude changes mm -hmm. his to not guilty. And the foreman changes his to not guilty. So it's we nine only to have three. Three people who are saying guilty at this point. And now. And white supremacist guy goes, yeah, these picky little points. You know how these people lie? It's born in them. They, they drink, they kill. It's human nature. I've known a couple who are okay. The people, so everybody gets up and walks away from him at the table because he's being so freaking racist. I mean, this is 1957. So he has, these are a, a whole, a whole uh, group. There's 11 men, 11 white men. And this dude, old cold guy is given this tirade and he, they find, what he is saying is so offensive to these 1957, 11 white men that they all get up and turn their back on her one by one. Yeah. My, you know, that's rough. 
when he's sitting there going, oh, this kid, his type, he's dangerous, he's wild. Glasses tells him, sit down and don't open your mouth again. So he goes and sits in the timeout chair. Yeah, which he should have done before because he's, he's got a cold. He should have been sitting at the table with everyone else. Uh, um, so Henry Fonda has his back to the table and he says it's difficult to keep personal prejudice out of these deliberations. Uh, but prejudice obscures the truth. Nobody will ever really know if this kid did it or not, but we have reasonable doubt. We nine can't understand how you three are still so sure. Boy, that's how I am with Trump supporters. I still don't understand how some of you people I love, how can you still be sure that he's good for a mirror? And, and you know what? You can save it. I don't need to hear your explanations. <laughs> so don't, don't try. Don't try talking to me. So it is glasses. It is C. Scott and it is white supremacists who are still saying guilty. And the glasses guys goes, the evidence is by the woman who saw it. The boy raised his hand and she saw, she saw him raise his hand and saw him stab down. She could look out the window from her bed. She's got a good look at the boy. It is unshakable testimony. At this point, Don Draper. Ugh. The putz Don Draper goes, yeah, yeah, I'm back to guilty. This guy. Oh, you know, old cold guy being the white supremacist, you would think that he was the least like 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 you would hate his character the most. But no, nope, nope, nope. That for me is reserved for putzy Don Draper. This guy. I mean, he is. No backbone whatsoever. Mm-mm. Yeah, he's swaying in the wind. Oh, and his jokes just aren't funny. At least, no. at least Dark Fozzie was sarcastic. Maybe yeah. I could kind of get a chuckle. And he got the fan to work. Yeah. I'm just saying. So they are angry, and, and the three are going, just take the hung jury to the judge. It's 7 o'clock. Oh, so, so Fonda goes, okay. It's, what, 6.15 now? If it's 7 o'clock, we don't have, um, 7 o'clock is a reasonable time. If we don't have a unanimous decision by 7 o'clock, then I, I don't remember what they were going to do. They were going to go to the judge and it was going to be a hung oh, jury. with a hung jury. At this point, Glasses takes his glasses off and rubs his, his the bridge of his nose because... Uh, it's hard work keeping your body that erect, uh, having one bead of sweat show, and uh, being exasperated but never showing. So he's rubbing his 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 nose, the bridge of his nose. An old, old, old man. Father time. Why why are why are, why are you doing that? Is is there a problem? And is it because of your eyeglasses? Uh, because. You know, I remember the woman who testified in court, you know, who could see from her bed through the L train, the kid stabbed his father. I remember she had those indentations on her nose, too. 
Does that mean that she wore eyeglasses? Oh, Henry Fonda is just, he is so excited about this. Um, somebody goes, uh, yeah, you know, it was like she was 45 trying to look 35, so so she didn't want to wear her glasses. And, um, but, but then there's a close-up of glasses dude and the marks on the side of his nose, and he goes, only glasses make those marks. And Fonda goes, do you wear your glasses in bed? Nobody wears their eyeglasses to bed. Um, and you don't have time to put them on if you're, if you're looking out the window of the L train. So her eyesight is now in question. What did this woman really see? And what does white supremacists do? Oh, guilty. he changes. I'm going with not guilty. Advertising dude goes, oh, 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 oh yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, me, me, okay. me too. Not guilty. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Glasses dude goes, you know, I now have a reasonable doubt. So we're only left with. And then there was one. C. Scott. Old C. Scott. Everybody's looking at him and he goes, I say he's guilty. And Fonda goes, okay, let's hear your arguments. Oh, man, even I was going, how many times do we have to go through this? Okay. So let's hear your arguments. So C. Scott's Uh, like, they're rotten kids. He's an old man. You can't prove he didn't get to the door. There was a knife. There's the L train. I remember the movies I saw. Uh, I would... They heard the kid yell. The facts here. At this point, his wallet falls on the floor, and the picture of his kid falls out. Rotten kids, you work your life out. And he tears up, and he tears up the picture of his kid and says, not <gasps> The foreman knocks on the door. We're ready now. They all put their jackets on. See Scott, his head's down at the table. Fonda takes his jack, takes C. Scott's jacket off the hanger, goes over, gives it to him, helps it on, waits for him to go. They, there's the camera pans the table where there was the crumpled up um, tic-tac-toe and all the paper and Henry Fonda walks outside the old key and the old man exchange names. You see uh, one white woman walking down the street <laughs> in heels, <laughs> in her shirtwaist dress and her kitten heels, and it's over. Twelve angry men, and they were angry men. They had some. They had some anger. Each bringing their own their own baggage to that jury room and saving the life of one uh hispanic youth we'll say one questionable ethnicity child now in the beginning did you notice that all the camera angles were above eye level and they used a wide angle lens so that you could see a distance between each of the subjects. Oh, I didn't notice that. As as the movie progressed, the camera got to eye level, 
And it, at the end, it was eye level and close up with a telephoto shot so that it seemed even more claustrophobic in that room. Yeah, I could feel it getting closer and closer. Mm-hmm. But I didn't know why until I did my research. Mm. Well done. The director, Mr. Lumet, um, had all the actors in that one room going over their lines over and over and over again so that they would really feel the frustration of being in that room with that close proximity with all those people oh, before that's they cool. shot. That makes sense. Mm-hmm. It's pretty crazy that the whole, everything except for three minutes of the film takes place in that one room. Yeah. But you don't feel it at all. And a lot of times, like, when you see a movie that's based on a stage play, you can kind of tell. But yes. I don't know, like, this this just it just stands up it's just really it's really good and it moves really fast and you i i don't have half the notes because i was just watching it i kept pausing it to write notes uh it did not make a profit it um and so henry fonda because he was a producer never received a deferred salary for it wow how interesting I guess they didn't, it was ahead they, of its they, time? Uh, it was felt that they didn't market it the right way. It was put in theaters that were too big. It should have been smaller theaters or um, I don't know. Well, maybe but, and maybe people just didn't want to hear it. They was like, oh, I'm being preached to. Yeah. Look true. at these social justice warriors. And they would a lot of people would probably feel that way seeing it today. Uh, yep. Oh, yeah. It was filmed in 21 days. Nice. Nice tight schedule. Henry Fonda chose Sidney Lumet because he uh, was known for keeping things on time and keeping the budget down. Mm, that's a good reputation you to have. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I get this not shipping like, on time and under budget. Yeah, uh, definitely not a Oselznik. <laughs> Uh, Henry Fonda wore white in it. Now, we couldn't tell because it was light gray. I noticed it. Did you? I noticed it. And then I really noticed it when he, the last shot of the movie, when he's walking down the steps. Yeah. And again, he never said that the guy was innocent, but it's not innocent. It's called not guilty. Yes, because in order to convict somebody, you, you can't convict somebody just because you feel like they did it. Exactly. Because they're that kind of person. Yeah. Or it was nominated for three Oscars and it got zero. Oh, do you know what it lost to? Bridge over the River Kwai. Oh, I never saw that, but I've heard things. I might want to add that to our list. Yeah, you should add it to the list. It was so low budget that like when they set the, the lights up for a shot, any scene in the movie that would use the, the lights at that same shot, they shot at that time. So it was shot completely out of, out of well, that, sequence. Yeah, that's what you do. You, you get up, you get, once you get the light set up, anything that's going to be shot with that light set up, that's what gets shot. But it just seems so hard because of the progression of it. You know, like um, Lee J. Cobb, I mean, my gosh, he had to, well, he had to be angry for the whole thing, but those angry people had to keep that same momentum no matter where they were in the movie. But this is why not everyone can act. Oh, boy. It's, 
I guess, well played. <laughs> this is why they have the Oscars. And Henry Fonda never produced again. He's like, I'm out. I'm done. Yeah, that was too much work. Like this is probably of this is probably the easiest movie to produce if you're gonna be a producer on a film. Yeah, you definitely don't have to work on costumes. Locations. Uh, locations. Stunts. <laughs> Props. Like he like this was and he was out after this. That's hilarious to me. I I couldn't take it. We just had the one room. And it, it was a 21-day shoot. Oh, my gosh. I'm never producing again. <laughs> the knife was an Italian stiletto switchblade with Filipino-style Chris blade. Wow. I just thought you should know that. And the, the, movies, the, the movies that uh, Glasses saw, neither of those movies actually existed. Oh. But... Sonia Sotomayor, a uh, Supreme Court yeah, justice, justice, said when she saw this film in college, she knew that she wanted to go into the law. But she would instruct her students that juries couldn't follow the examples in this film <laughs> because their conclusions were based on speculation, not facts. And like Henry Fonda going out and buying that knife, he'd be kicked off the jury. Yeah, I, I was thinking that. Like, oh, you're just going around, walking around the, the scene by yourself. I, I was like, I don't think you can do that, Fonda. No. And speculating about the woman wearing glasses, that would have called for a mistrial. Yeah, and the, like, the like a lot of it was, yeah, that's what I, no, he's not guilty because this woman, she wore glasses, but she didn't have the glasses. Like, that would be... I, I feel like it would have this trial should have ended in a mistrial just because obviously the defense, the defense attorneys were not great. Exactly. Because that's that is something that the defense attorney should say. Oh, um, I see you have indentations on the bridge of your nose. Do you usually wear eyeglasses or, um, you know, bringing up the fact that that the, the man, you know, had a had to drag his left foot. Could he have made it? I mean, those are all arguments that should have been brought up to the jury during the trial. Mm -hmm. And we don't even know. I mean, the jury wouldn't either. Um, But all of within a legal trial, all of the things which can't be evidence that can't even be brought into evidence because of like sometimes there's a obviously good reason. But sometimes there's like a really dumb reason. Right. Like, just a, a weird, dumb, like, reason why this big piece of evidence that would exonerate or pr- kind of lead to a, eh, I don't know if this person is guilty or not, a reasonable exactly. doubt thing that the jury doesn't even hear it. Right. Um, somebody named John Kelly in who was head of United Artists between 93 and 96, Looked into a possible remake set in L.A. during the riots after Rodney King verdict mm. with Michelle Pfeiffer playing um, somebody. So I guess they would have they were looking into having women on the jury. Oh, and I'm guessing there would be some black people. <gasps> Maybe some some people of ethnicity other than blue collar guy and watchmaker. I, you know, part of me I know that they did a remake. This is this is one of those projects though that it really lends itself to 
to doing a remake. But then I'm like, you don't really even need to do a remake. No, exactly. But if you're going to do a remake, I would just say Regina King for a role. She's got to be on that jury. She's got to be on the jury. And um, there were there were a lot of um, like mistakes that you could see, like um, uh, shadows of cameras or stuff like that. But they did say that they noticed that anytime they showed a juror's watch, it wasn't the right time. <laughs> and the clock on the wall said the same time for almost the entire film. I never even noticed that. No, because you, you don't notice that because it's so engrossing and you're you're trying to listen to every word because every word is so important. Mm-hmm. You're just like, what? I mean, I missed the part. I think I glanced down. I was probably writing a note when he said, why do you? And I just heard him say, why do you keep wiping your nose? And I, in 2017, I'm like, oh, snap. Glasses has He's a Coke cocaine. problem. <laughs> <laughs> He's on cocaine. Ooh, ooh. So, um, you did some other research, I heard. I did? Oh, I thought that you were watching something more relevant that (sighs) that you were going to bring to this. Oh, I was. Uh, Yeah. I've been watching, and so have you, Ma. We've been watching the show on A&E called The Murder of Lacey Peterson. Yes, we have. And I didn't, because I had just moved to Los Angeles when this whole thing happened. So I really didn't follow it that much. I only kind of followed what I heard. And based on what I had heard, I was like, oh, snap, that man's guilty. He killed his wife. He was having an affair and he killed his wife. But I never. As we do. As we do. We just make those snaps. I just made that. I was like, oh, snap, he's guilty. He killed her. Because and usually it is the husband or boyfriend. Like it's. statistically speaking that's that's usually what happens so but i've been i've you know been watching like true crime and like hearing different stories and stuff and so i was kind of curious about the uh the evidence against him because i was like okay you know he was he was found guilty he was sentenced to death by a jury of his peers Mm -hmm. so there has to be you know, the evidence. And I, I had never heard the evidence before. There's a reason for that. It turns out, <laughs> um, there's not that much evidence that he actually <laughs> did it. It's, and my mind is really lacking. I'm like, wow. The prosecution, because the prosecution has the burden of proof. So the prosecution can't even, uh, um, agree on, a time of death. They don't even know a manner of death. All they have yeah. is the tapes of him, which are admittedly horrible and do not paint him in an innocent picture at all. But he's like, guilty of being a, a jerk. He's definitely a cad. Um, and uh, maybe a pathological liar. Um, and he was fishing where the bodies were discovered. But... The, the news media and the, the sheriff and the police, they broadcasted his alibi before the bodies were discovered. Yeah. So, and there's a lot of stuff. And they paint, I always thought this was funny too, because, you know, in California, you know, I don't really hear because I don't have 
one watch the local news so i don't hear too much about it but every once in a while you'll kind of hear things like oh in california and modesto's up north um they always made it out that oh modesto modesto's such a uh a quaint and peaceful area but it's not i'm like that i'm like modesto's right next to stockton like that's like that's meth 101 up there oh like it's not it's they're they're as in every place in America, there are great and fantastic neighborhoods, but you go a mile in any direction and you will stumble across the not great neighborhoods. So they make it sound like, oh, a murder and that it was unheard of for this pregnant woman to go missing. Turns out there have been a history of pregnant women who have gone missing. Really? And there was this one who was found, who was pregnant and found like the same... Like, her body was the kind of the same as uh, Lacey w- was. Really? Yeah. And the the baby that Lacey had, Connor, um, he was found with black electrical tape taped to his ear and twine around his neck. So... Because I heard that, I heard when, that he was not born before the murder well okay so this show obviously its point of view is to show reasonable doubt into the into scott peterson and to kind of it presents him in a light that he's innocent that's that's where the show is coming from so it's going to present those points okay so in the prosecution and in the trial there was a doctor and he took the bones, actually he took one bone, which was the femur, and there's this formula that was developed by this, this famous doctor, and based on the weight of the bone, and they had Lacey's last ultrasound, the doctor was able to, based, using a formula, say, well, this was when uh, the baby died, and put a date. And so oh. that doctor put the date as being December 24th. Which, of course, because he's for the prosecution, that fits the prosecution's timeline. Mm-hmm. The appeals attorney has gone to this to the doctor who came up with the formula. Because the, the prosecution doctor, he just used this other doctor's formula. So the defense, the appeals attorneys for Scott Peterson went to the doctor that came up with this. And the doctor was basically like, what the hell did this dude do? Like... You're, so, you're not supposed to use just one bone. You're not supposed to use the femur. You're also supposed to use like the tibia and another bone. Mm. And you have to use all of those measurements. And then you do, and then you, you don't use that formula, formula. You use this formula. And so he did his formula and he was saying that it is possible that the kid lived as long as January 3rd, 2003. Oh my God. Yeah. And there's a, there was a lot of evidence that the jury didn't even get to hear. Like, the whole thing about the boat, because they're saying that he took her in a boat. He had her body wrapped up. He had anchors on her body. And he took out his boat that he had, and he dumped her over with the anchors. And so his defense attorney went out, same time of year, same, same kind of conditions, had his intern try to dump this, like, 150-pound you know, sack with anchors out over the boat. The guy couldn't do it. He, five times out of five, the boat capsized. 
Yeah, I had heard that and too. And the judge wouldn't let the jury see that videotape because the judge said that it wasn't, that the circumstances weren't similar enough. But the jury was able to actually go out, get on the boat, on land, and get in the boat. And you can see the jury kind of like rocking the boat, but it's on land, so it doesn't right. really get the full effect. Um, there was also a lot of other things that got thrown out that the jury didn't get to hear. like Because the jury always went with the timeline of the woman who saw the dog. Mm -hmm. um, but they they missed or didn't get to see because it was scanned, the mailman. Because the mailman, because, you know, the man always has to have its eye on whoever's working. So the mailman has to scan when he arrives so that, you know, the United States Postal Service and the, his boss knows where he is, where he's delivering the mail. So he has like the time stamp of when he delivered the mail on that day to the Peterson house. And everyone knows that a mailman knows the dogs along his route. Mm -hmm. And he was like, that dog Mackenzie would bark at me every day. Didn't matter where Mackenzie was, if he was out in the yard, if he was in the house, he would bark. And we know that rest his soul Sparky, he would, he would <laughs> always bark at the mailman, no yeah. matter what. He barked at anything. Yeah. yeah. And so the mailman, he was like, no, I remember that day because there wasn't a bark. And he remembers the gate being opened. Oh. And and he has like the timestamp to be like, well, it was this time. So there's just there's just a lot of I'm not I'm like Fonda. I'm not saying that he's innocent. Right. But, but there's <laughs> a lot of stuff. And and the jury can only do what the judge lets them hear. And they talked about that also in the in the show in that there were two members of the jury who got kicked off. One guy got kicked yes. off earlier and then this other guy or woman got kicked off like right before they went into deliberations. And they might have even been in deliberations because it was like a scene out of uh, 12 Angry Men where they came in and I think everybody wanted to vote him guilty. And I think one person was just like, all right, but but before we do, I just because it's, you know, this is a death penalty case. I just uh -huh. want to walk through everything. And so uh -huh. everybody was like, yeah, yeah. And so they started going through and walking through everything and had a dry erase board. And everybody was like, all right, this, this, you know, everybody was kind of working the case. And then this one person gets kicked off. I forget what they did. They get kicked off and they get replaced with this alternate juror who she just comes in and she she just George C. Scott's them. And yeah. it's just like, he's guilty. What are we doing? Like, yeah, let's just take a vote. And yeah. Get out of here. And it, it's and it's like, why is he guilty? Because and, you know, they're always showing like Nancy Grace and stuff. And these <laughs> jurors weren't sequestered. So right. And she was always on television, always saying, like, I just have a feeling. I just have a feeling. I know he's guilty. And everybody's like, Nancy, like, why are you saying this? And she's like, I have my first I have right to free speech and I'm allowed to say it, which. All right. Yeah, I guess you do. But, you know, for a prosecutor, that's that's kind of irresponsible of you. Yeah, definitely. So it's just really interesting because this like I thought it was a slam dunk and I'm waiting for all of like the the forensics and they're like there's they didn't find yeah. anything in his house 
They right. said, oh, it smelled like bleach. And they're, like, there are even police officers who were like, it didn't smell like bleach. And there was nothing, like, out of the ordinary and stuff. I mean, yeah, he acted weird and, like, a, a jerk and had all of this other stuff going on. So you're like, ah, oh, but the evidence... I mean, this this Puerto Rican kid had more evidence on him. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's just it's just kind of weird. Like, oh, I like. Yeah. And that's a it's... that's a white dude. <laughs> that's what that blew my mind. I was like, oh, damn. So you know what you're gonna get? Oh man. Oh, I just you. I don't know. Like, do, do you ask for a bench trial? <laughs> like, what do we know about this judge? Well, that's that. Yeah, and a lot of people do just plead guilty for a a lesser sentence because you don't. It, it's you don't know. I mean, most cases are plead pled out because you know you want your hands in. I thought that would be a funny scene of a film. Somebody, I, I get arrested and I look over at my jury and it's just like every single like marked off of the 12 Angry Men. And I'm like, oh, snap, that's the 12 Angry Men jury. I'm getting out. And they come back right. and they're, they come back in five minutes and they're like guilty. I'm like, son of a bitch. Legion <laughs> cops on that jury. I'm like, what happened, Fonda? Where were you? And Fonda's like, that first, the first time when he abdicated, he's like, 11 came back guilty. I know. I, I gambled and lost. <laughs> lost. Sorry. Your life. Sorry. So, Aaron, what are we doing next week? Oh. Oh, I, oh we're doing A Star is Born. We're doing A Star is Born because I saw Bradley Cooper on Ellen. And he is doing a remake of A Star is Born. Yet again. That will be the fourth, I believe, remake. But we are going to do not the Barbra Streisand, Chris Christopherson of the 70s. We are going to do the Judy Garland A Star is Born. Yes. We're doing that because I have it on good authority from a podcast. It's fantastic. Um, what's it called? Oh, You Must Remember This. Fantastic podcast about Hollywood. I really recommend it. And I believe in the host says that, that this is like the Judy Garland performance. Yeah, forget Wizard of Oz, people. No, this is this. the one you want to see. This is her best work. So next week we will be coming to you about A Star is Born. A little bit of a musical in there. Lighten things up a touch. Oh, it's a musical? (laughs) Yeah. And I didn't think it was like all that lighthearted. Hmm. All right. Okay. So we hope you enjoyed this episode, 12 Angry Men. From two happy ladies. (laughs) 